and welcome to episode 45. Yes, episode 45. We're recording episode 45 before episode 44, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to confuse me. <laughs> just, to, just to make life difficult for you. So uh, <laughs> just because our objects to observe in the night sky for the month of September makes more sense to come out before this one, but I think it works better for us to record this, this one first. It's a little bit more natural this way, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm. So did you get out and see the moon, Jupiter, and Saturn on Friday night? It's pretty cool. I did. Yeah, I had two nights this week that I observed. One was to see the Lunar X on Tuesday, I guess. Okay. Then, yeah, Friday night with Jupiter, Saturn. Well, Jupiter and the moon in particular really close. And, of course, Saturn trailing not too far behind uh, was, you know, amazing to see. That was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was um, pretty neat. The, did you see the Lunar X? I did. I went out a little late though. So, um, like the lunar, lunar by that point, <laughs> <laughs> well, it had transitioned out of the kind of dark region of the moon, but if you know what you're looking for, it was still very evident. Like it was mm -hmm. very bright. Um, so I, I think I was observing at about nine thirty to 10 PM local time. Yeah. Maybe we should recap what the lunar X is uh, really quick again. Yeah, so the Lunar X isn't actually like a, you know, like a, a feature like a crater or anything like that on the moon. Um, it's actually a couple craters that are wedged beside each other. And the crater walls or, or the ridges or whatever they are, I guess, are, are quite elevated. And every month, the, the sunlight catches just the tops of these, uh, this, I guess, this feature while it's kind of on that dark side of the Terminator. And it, it just shows up as a very prominent X. And you can only catch it for a certain amount of time before the Terminator moves and, and the, uh, the reflection of the sunlight is no longer caught by those ridges, or at least it's not as prominent. Um, so it, while it happens every month, sometimes it happens during the day or sometimes it happens uh, when only you are observing at, say, three in the morning. Yeah. And, uh, and therefore it's not, easily observable all year round. Um, yeah. But this last Tuesday, it was up. Uh, so if you were in Canada, or I guess North America, um, I think it was uh, like at its best at around 9pm Eastern time. So where we live, that's about I think 7pm our time. So I was looking at this thing two and a half hours or so after it was at its kind of most optimum time to observe. And uh, like I say, it was still there but um, not as spectacular as when you catch it kind of at that optimum time. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's cool anyway that you saw. And what did you, it, you've seen it before though, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I've observed it a, a couple of times before. Um, so uh, it was neat to observe it at this point though, like a little bit later in its cycle. Um, Cause every other time I've seen it, it has been more, I guess, closer to that optimum time to, to observe it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. And then Friday night, uh, yeah, I was out uh, to take a look at Jupiter and Saturn uh, and the moon. Uh, I had my 76 millimeter Takahashi in its uh, native configuration. So it's operating at uh, F 7.5. And I also received a new eyepiece this week, which we kind of talked about, I think, last week on the podcast. Uh, it's the Meisuyama 35 millimeter inch and a quarter eyepiece, which uh, it's no longer made. And um, 
you know, it's somewhat rare. The, the, I don't think too many of the Mesuyamas ended up on North American soil. No. Yeah. What, what makes it very intriguing is, is it looks like an ice cream cone. Well, yeah, other than the aesthetics, <laughs> which are, you know, it's a, there's no other eyepiece that looks like this one. There's not. It's, yeah. it's neat looking. It's just, yeah, it's sort of a funky design. Yeah, it really is. And like, even like the, like, I'm sorry, I don't know if you heard that. I, I have it in my hand and I'm kind of messing around with it. That's right. It, it's kind of modular. Like it comes apart to allow for easy cleaning. Oh, really? Um, like yeah. dishwasher safe? Yeah, yeah. Just toss it in the dishwasher and, <laughs> and all the fingerprints will come off. Um, and the coatings. And the coatings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, this eyepiece has the widest field of view you can possibly get in an inch and a quarter eyepiece. Mm. Um, and something I learned, Chris, and I don't know if you knew this, but the barrel screws off, detaches from the eyepiece, and you can attach the eyepiece directly to like a, a T2 fitting. And apparently the field of view is actually even a little bit wider at that point. What? No, yeah. I never heard of this. Where did, how did you figure that out? Like just the experimentation or did you read that just, somewhere? Just reading about it on cloudy nights. Yeah. I haven't tried that. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah. That's like, so although we have pretty wide field two inch eyepieces, like what intrigues me about this is often I'm swapping back and forth from my, my two inch finder to uh, the one and a quarter. Um, eyepieces that I'm using for planetary. And I was thinking, man, it would be great to get uh, as wide a field as possible and stay in, in one and a quarter or swap out to a really high end one and a quarter inch prism diagonal or something like that. So that's pretty interesting. So but do you have a T2 threaded uh, diagonal? I think you do. Isn't your baiter? It is. But so when you, when you take the barrel off of the Mesuyama, you have male threads, T2 male threads. I'm unscrewing it right now. So if you can hear that awful noise, that's just the, the metal on metal. God, it's, that sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like I'm, you know, hurting a small animal, but, but I'm not. It's just an eyepiece. <laughs> um, anyway, I'll stop that. Uh, that's an awful sound. Uh, yeah, so the eyepiece has male threads and the Bader prism that I have, um, at the eyepiece side, you need to have uh, female threads to attach. So I'd have to get some sort of a converter to attach it directly. Mm. And I'm not actually sure that it's a T2 thread. I, I guess I should find that out first. I kind of think it's that weird Vixen thread. Um, oh. Or, or maybe even like that weird Takahashi thread. That, yeah. That's not really you know, a common T2, but yeah. anyway, regardless, it, it can attach somehow and apparently get, I don't know if you're squeezing that much more out of the field of view. Like, you know, it, it maybe goes from 3.2 to, you know, 3.22 degrees Yeah, you know, would be my guess. I, it's probably not worth the effort. Yeah. Cause then you're also hard attached to your, to your diagonal and then it's a real pain. Not really that. easy so, to switch it out. Yeah. 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 But you know, like if you were, if you could do it somewhat easily, you were, say traveling, um, I think you know that could be an interesting, uh, you know, tool to have in the having the the very lightweight uh, case. Like if you can just simply uh, have it thread on like that, pretty easily, then you could have just a pretty wide field, just that much wider when you're when you're somewhere maybe really far south or somewhere like that that you you might want to have as much of of a field as possible without having to take a a different diagonal and larger eyepieces than that. 
Yeah. Yeah. It gives you options. Uh, that's for sure. Cool. Um, so the interesting thing, so in my little tack, this IP should give me about a 3.2 degree field of view. Yeah. Um, and on Friday night, I believe Jupiter and the moon were about 2.2 degrees apart. Is that right? Yep. Something like so that. So I should have, I should have had an extra degree of space in that eyepiece. Um, and I was able to fit Jupiter and the moon in the field of view, but I wouldn't say that I had a lot of extra real estate there. Oh, really? Um, so the other thing, so I, like I'm questioning the, the formula. I use this field of view calculator. That's just a website on the internet. Oh yeah. Cause some of them use the, um, you're supposed to use radian, eh? It's like you take your focal length and divide it by the eyepiece and multiply it by the radian or something like that. 57.3. And then that's going to give you your actual field of view, not the mm -hmm. true field of view. Cause the true field of view calculation is just based on magnification and the apparent field of view. And that, that can be off by, a fair piece because I think with one calculation in my in my five inch apo I get like almost 5.8 degrees but I think the actual true field is like 3.4 so it can be off by like the better part of half a degree maybe depending on yeah the yeah yeah, yeah that, need, that would make a lot of sense to and me. and sorry it's it's the um, just recalling off the top of my head it's the field stop you need the field stop diameter and then I think you divide that by the focal length and then multiply it by 57.334, something like that. And that actually mm -hmm. will give you your, your uh, actual field, like that will, that will do it. So, okay. but yeah, a lot of the calculations and formula out there just take the um, apparent field uh, and then divide it by the magnification. So if you have an 80 degree eyepiece and you have 80 power, it'll give you one degree. But if that eyepiece has a uh, field stop of 40 millimeters, you know what I mean? And then it's like a 400 millimeter telescope, then like it, it, the, the calculation is slightly different. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 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 That was one thing that, that uh, I took away Friday night was just that field of view calculation was way off. But um Anyway, it was really neat to see the moon and Jupiter just in one field of view within that eyepiece. Um, I did do a little bit of comparing between the Meisuyama and then the 24 millimeter panoptic, which yeah. the, the 24 millimeter panoptic is the widest field of view for an inch and a quarter eyepiece that you can easily buy today that's uh, still being manufactured. But it's a little bit of a, the field of view is a little smaller than the Meisuyama. And could you see, yeah, could you see the difference? Absolutely. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so I, I could fit Jupiter and the moon in, and, and there was definitely room, you know, within that field of view on yeah. both sides. Not a lot, but a little. Um, the panoptic, I couldn't fit both of them in um, at the same time. Now, no. uh, I probably should have taken my glasses off because I, I just lose a little bit of the outer edge of the panoptic, mm. but I don't think I would have had Jupiter in there anyway. How was the, uh, how was the eye relief on the Masuyama? Well, it, disappointing to be honest. Like, oh, I really? It's advertised I thought it was supposed as, to be really good. Well, like it's advertised as 23.9 or something like that, like 24 millimeters. Yeah. The, 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 the glasses is recessed, I think. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like ah. I'm thinking it's recessed 10 to 12 millimeters. Okay. So like usable is like 13 or something. That's pretty ah. tight. Yeah. I'm just guessing. So with my yeah. glasses on, I couldn't take in the whole field of view. I oh, really? see the field stop. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So, 
that was a little disappointing. Um, and I need to do more testing with it. Like people talk about the, the backgrounds being really black with that eyepiece. And mm. I feel like that was apparent. Like I, it seemed quite dark, which was nice. Okay. Gives you more contrast than at stars and other things that you might look at. Well, that's kind of surprising because you think that the 24 pan optic being slightly higher power would have a darker background. Yeah. And, and I, I would say they were close, but I, I wasn't being overly critical. So mm. that's why I need to do a little more testing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do believe though that the panoptic was uh, sharper across the whole field for on axis and out to the edges. Oh, is that so? I need, again, I need to, I need to, you know, do a little more testing at least, at least on brighter objects. I felt like the Mesuyama showed a little bit of an aberration on bright stars and, huh. and even Jupiter. Now that might've been my focus. Um, well, hang on a second. So um, were you observing with your glasses off with the, on the Mesuyama? Uh, no, no, I kept, well, I was going back and forth um, with my glasses off though. Like I have astigmatism in my, let's think, uh, my right eye, but my left eye has virtually none. And I always observe with my left eye where there's oh, no astigmatism. Okay. So, oh, there you go. Okay. That was my theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now because it's planetary season, I really didn't want to mess around with, you know, comparing eyepieces at, <laughs> at that time. I really just thought low power eyepieces. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it, it, it's a very interesting eyepiece. Um, I'm, I'm going to play around with it some more, but I didn't want it to take away from me actually observing Jupiter, Saturn, and the moon, because the seeing actually was decent that night. Um, it wasn't the best I've ever had, but it was better than average, I think. Yeah. Um, so I spent a little bit of time on Jupiter, um, kind of seeing a lot of the regular stuff, the equatorial belts. Uh, the red spot wasn't visible that night. Um, I did see the, the, the southern polar region and some of the temperate belts as well. Okay. Um, so pretty good night there. Um, but Saturn actually, <laughs> that one blew me away a little bit. Yeah. Um, the Cassini vision or a division was far more visible than I've seen it so far this year, like at least through the 76 millimeter. Um, typically the only place I see the Cassini division is kind of on the left side of the rings and on the right hand side of the rings, just, you know, uh, that's where it's most visible. Yeah. Um, but Friday night, I was able to see it almost encircle the entire rings, which was quite Ooh, nice. That is nice. Um, and then I, I saw the North Equatorial Belt, which is very common, right? But then, like, I was glimpsing the North Temperate Belt, which I'm not sure I've seen that very often in any telescope. Oh, wow. Honest. And it wasn't there all of the time. Like, you know how seeing kind of fluctuates at the eyepiece almost yeah. by the millisecond. It would, it would come and go, but when it came in, it was like, it hit you. Like there was no mistaking what you were seeing. It was very cool. So maybe we should just uh, sort of refresh people on what these, these belts are on, uh, on Saturn and Jupiter. Yeah. So they, both planets are, you know, I guess considered gaseous planets. In fact, geez, when did we do that podcast? That, like episode 15 or something like something that? Something like that. A ways back. Um so as gaseous planets, we don't actually see the surface, but we do see cloud bands. Um, and there's a, the, there's a number of different regions within these bands. Um, and they stay somewhat consistent in terms of kind of where they're located on the planet. Um, in Saturn's case, they're fairly, I don't know, I'd say... Subtle. Yeah, subtle, but also static. Like 
like the band doesn't change a lot. You might see occasionally some bright spots within a band, but for the most part, they don't really evolve or change. Yeah, it's very uniform. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Jupiter, um, the belts and, and the bands, like they, they stay kind of in the same place, but there's so much irregularity within them uh, along the edges of them. Sometimes they get wider or thinner or brighter or darker. Um, yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot more going on on Jupiter that you can observe. Um, and, you know, it, it changes season by season and yeah. sometimes even within the season on Jupiter. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more dynamic there. And I think, I think a big factor is it's, well, Jupiter is a fair bit larger than, than Saturn. And then it's also close to the sun. I think it has a fair bit more heat. And I think the activity on Saturn for the most part is uh, more on the polar regions, unfortunately. And they're a little bit more difficult to see. Yeah. 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 So I, I had a really fun night, uh, Friday night. The weather was great. Uh, the, the skies were pretty good and it was a nice, uh, a nice evening. Oh, cool. Yeah. So how about you? Did you get any observing done? Yeah, I, I did five mornings this week and was wow. able to do uh, three sets of sketches. So two of the mornings were, one morning was a total bust. I think, it, I think that might've even been maybe last Monday. Yeah. And I'm getting, I was off work for 10 days on vacation, quote unquote, just like staycation at home. And then, uh, and then the Monday was looking clear. So I got up and then it was just a bust. So I kind of, it's, it's not great to have to get up early and then, then work after trying to observe and not even getting an observation in. Um, but yeah, I did, did a few sketches. Um, Mars is, re, you know, it's really starting to come along now and it's getting uh, much larger and brighter especially through the, uh, I'm just using my 60 millimeter. So it's a very small telescope, pretty much about as small a telescope as, as people would use. And, uh, you know, really training my eye on, on how to pull out the detail. And then hopefully in the next couple of weeks, um, start getting the 100 mil out um, once the new mount arrives. And then, uh, you know, really starting to make uh, some, some better observations because, once my eyes train now using the 60 millimeter, I figure going to, to the 100 millimeter is really gonna, gonna improve the views quite a bit. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a huge jump. Even like when I, well, just about all of my viewing uh, this summer and uh, early spring or late spring has been with the 76 millimeter refractor. And one evening, oh, I don't know, two weeks ago, I, pull, I pulled out the 120 millimeter refractor and you know, when you get used to that small aperture and you train your eye to see all sorts of minute detail, yeah. it's incredible what you see then when you go to the larger aperture. Yeah. It's yeah. wild. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of part of the method to, to my madness with this. And uh, yeah, and that mount should arrive on Thursday, apparently. So Ooh, pretty excited exciting. about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a little nervous about it though, you know, um, I had mistakenly ordered the AZGTE um, due to a little bit of a mix-up and miscommunication with the with the distributor. Um, I'm a little bit confused about what the GTE is because it seems like people get the GTI and use that as an equatorial. So I'm not sure what they're using the E for. Um, but anyway, the GTE is a Skywatcher GT. It's a mount that goes left, right, up, down. It's very, very simple. Um, but then it will track when you put it on an object. The GTE that I had, you couldn't manually move it around the sky. 
you have to uh, either line it and then plug in the object you want to take a look at or um, slew to it, which was super painful on my phone. Um, and I have an older iPhone and it worked. It was just not, uh, not the best thing. And I'd get it going really fast to slew to an area of the sky I wanted to find something in. And then the, the, I couldn't get the button to unstick. So it would just like keep going. Oh, no. <laughs> so anyway, it, it, that wasn't the greatest. Um, with the GTI, you can just point and observe. So like you see Venus, you point at Venus and hit track and it's going to track. It's great. Um, but, you know, I know there's some, as there, there is with, with all telescope equipment, especially mass-produced items like Skywatcher creates, um, there's some variability in the quality. And uh, I see lots of comments online about people getting um, one of the GT mounts and then them not tracking that well. But this one was beautifully tracking. So it was a bit tough to send it back because I've seen posts where people say, oh, it only tracks good for one to three minutes. And I was getting excellent tracking for 20 to 30 minutes um, at, at you know around 100 power, or 105 power or so. So that's, uh, that's pretty good in my books. Um, definitely something, uh, you know, pretty much meeting or exceeding my expectations. So I was really excited for that. So hopefully the GTI, when it comes, it will, uh, it will track, uh, you know, hopefully close to as good and then, um, uh, really, uh, allow me to, to do some more and, and better, uh, observing because, uh, you know, I've been using that 5.1 XO since you took back, um, my, I mean, your Nikon. I, I, I borrowed my eyepiece back from you. Yeah, I really, I really like that eyepiece. I'm not sure I would buy it, but I did really like the Nikon Nav uh, quite a bit. Um, I don't know if I owned it. I don't know that I would sell it. It, it's just wonky with certain focal ratios or lengths or something. I don't know. You know, the only thing I could think of with that Nav because it didn't work that well with my Takahashi 60 millimeter at F10, which I thought was weird because it worked beautifully at F6. And then it worked beautifully in my Takahashi 100 millimeter F7.4. But you were also experiencing trouble with your Takahashi 76. I was. 7.5. So here's what yeah. I'm thinking. I think I might've figured this one out. Ooh. And that's that it just doesn't work well at or around a 600 millimeter focal length for some bizarre reason. This is the only thing I can conclude, Shane, because your 76 and my 100 uh, were produced on the same line, like within weeks or months of each other. That we ordered them the same day and, uh, and they came in in the same batch. So likely they're very close. So anyway, regardless, Tagahashi is a high standard for quality. Mm -hmm. and making sure that the stuff works. And I have very little doubt that, that your telescope, my telescope are, are pretty much identical, except that mine has 24 millimeters more aperture. Other than that, I think they're probably identical telescopes. Mm -hmm. But that nav worked beautifully in the 100. If I was only going to use it in my 100, I would have bought it from you because it worked so well in the 100. And it just didn't work very well in, in the 60 millimeter F10. And Oddly, like if people are kind of hearing this or hearing these numbers, well, an F10 telescope is typically much easier on an eyepiece than an F7.5 or an F6. 
Um, so it just doesn't make that much sense. Now you're going to be running higher power in a smaller exit pupil, but you aren't with your 76, you're running at F seven and a half, which is, I, I don't know that anybody could tell a difference between an F seven and a half and an F 7.4. Um, like my telescope, really, you should get pretty much the same performance. So I don't know what to tell you. The only thing that's common is that your 76, seven and a half runs just below 600 millimeter um, focal length and my uh, 60 millimeter F10 runs at about 600 millimeter focal length as well. And that eyepiece just doesn't like that focal length. <laughs> yeah, and, and the issue that we were experiencing is, uh, it's just called like blackouts, meaning yeah. if your eye isn't perfectly positioned over kind of the middle of the eyepiece, you you just you get this blocking out of some of the field of view and you know mo some eye pieces are very picky about your eye placement but most of them you know you can be off axis a little bit and it really doesn't matter but this thing was was blocking out quite bad um so i did try it with the q extender in which extends my focal length to like over 960 and it was perfect. Like it was a beautiful eyepiece to use. Yeah. So um, you might be onto something about that focal length. Now, I don't know. It's kind of weird about that though, no. is blackout is usually a result of just like way too much uh, eye relief. And um, you would think then when I add that Q extender that the eye relief would like would be a little bit longer, I think. Um, and, and it should have a greater issue at that you know, when I'm using the Q extender as opposed to not using it. But, but here's the, here's the weirdest part. Like this is some pretty custom gear that we have, but we have almost the same custom setup. It's just off by a little bit. So my 60 millimeter using the same extender that you're using in your 76, that's where the problem came in. When I didn't yeah, use the uh, extender, I didn't, it, it, that's I don't, a strange eyepiece. I don't get it. I don't get it. But I know the difference with that eyepiece versus most other eyepieces that we have, with with maybe the exception of a few, is really intended to be used in a spotting scope. And I don't know. Maybe somehow they've optimized it for a certain spotting scope with a certain focal length. I don't know where it works really well during the day. I it it just yeah. baffles my mind. Yeah, it is when, weird. Yeah, because when I when I first boarded from you, and I think I even said as much. I said, I don't know what you're talking about with the blackouts because on the hundred it's it's great. Like, yeah, maybe I see them once in a while, but I kind of see them with the Pentax too. But then as soon as I switched to the 60, yeah, like there was there was there was times where I just couldn't even get it. Like I was just like I couldn't even acquire stuff in the eyepiece. And then I switched down to the uh f 5.9 focal length and uh yeah didn't seem to have as much problem either so i'm baffled by that eyepiece has definitely some some pretty big quirk to it too i should say between that and the and the eye caps which i think you figured out why the eye caps are designed that way <laughs> yeah maybe uh they you can attach like the eyepiece comes with a i don't know what it's even called it looks like a wing but that wing yeah, it has you attach a bat it to, wing. The, to, to the part of the eyepiece where you look through, like where your eye goes. And the intent of this thing is it's this piece of rubber that comes up and it shields your eye from uh, like light coming in and distracting you. Um, very few eyepieces come with those and I don't bother to attach them. I think they're a pain in the butt, um, at least when you're trying to store the eyepiece in your case. 
Um, but anyway, with this wing attached, those weird, the weird um, uh, caps for that eyepiece can still be used. So I don't know, <laughs> maybe that's why they, they designed it the way they did. Yeah. So maybe there was some logic to it after all. Yeah, I, I don't get those those winged eye cups. I feel like that's just gonna you're gonna poke yourself in the eye with that eventually. <laughs> like how how will that not happen? Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, unless you're observing somewhere very bright. Like if we're out dark, like sometimes it can be hard just to even line up your eye on an eyepiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let alone have this like I guess it's pretty soft. It's not like a jagged, serrated, you know, crusty or anything like that. But <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I've been using the 5.1 XO and man, the views are amazing, but boy, that small field of view and manually tracking with that and trying to sketch. <laughs> yeah, that's impossible. I feel like, like when I'm doing it, I feel like there should be like circus music playing. Like <laughs> it's like grab the scope get it on. Okay. Track it. Okay. Grab pen, paper, the pencil and paper. Okay. Track it. Okay. Now look and get the image. Okay. Now track it. Okay. Now look and get the image. Now track it. Now go and quickly start sketching and look and back and sketch and track. And it's just like maddening, right? Like I feel like I'm starting to lose my mind pretty quick using that. And yeah, and it's just not that comfortable to look through. When I'm just looking without sketching, it's fine because I can kind of keep my hand on it and just kind of slowly keep guiding the telescope along. And if I'm using like, and it's only giving me 115 power, but somehow it's it's ridiculously more challenging than using 171 power with like the, the Pentax XW. Yeah, yeah. I've been manually tracking like with my five and six millimeter TMB super monos, which are 30 degrees. Um, so extremely narrow field of view and I'm, I'm fine doing the manual tracking, but I can't imagine trying to draw an image as well <laughs> when you have such a narrow field of view. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think once I get the try, I, I hope it's fine. Cause, um, yeah, it'll give me 143 power in my hundred mil, which I think is, is a nice power because I feel that most nights I can get that, um, on on most objects i don't think there's there's many nights that aren't good enough to observe that you can't use 140 power basically i think that that should be good Mm -hmm. you know i think that's that's going to be nice and then i kind of want to wait to see it and use it a bit before i buy anything else like that's kind of that's kind of where where i'm at with with buying anything and uh also trying to save up my my pennies for an observing site. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> so there, there is that. Yeah. Um, one thing I, or a couple things I should have mentioned too about my Friday night session was that um, when I was looking at Saturn and Jupiter, um, the difference between one millimeter and focal length of my eyepieces made a pretty big difference. Um, so I was observing using the six millimeter TMB super mono, which gave me 95 times magnification the views were outstanding. Um, and I thought, Oh, you know, more magnification, uh, will, would probably be a good thing. Just the, the way the atmosphere was looking. Yeah. But when I went up one millimeter to five, um, like the view was not as good. Really? It's, it was only one millimeter, but it was like, okay, the limit tonight is mm-hmm. 95 times or a hundred probably is about where it was. Wow. 
Um, and so the, the five millimeter took me from 95 times to 114 times. And um, like, it wasn't a bad view, but I felt like I was seeing far more detail with the lower power. Huh. So, you know, for planetary observers, it's just, uh, you know, something to consider that you sometimes want to cover off as many focal lengths as you can with your eyepieces, just so that you can dial in the maximum magnification that the sky is supporting that night for you. Yeah. Hey, I had a question. Sorry, change the topic real quick. Is did you ever uh, order or receive uh, an observing chair? I remember you mentioned that once. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've been using it all summer. How is that? Oh, <laughs> it's heaven. Okay, it's so good. Yeah. So, so I ended up getting the Burlaback uh, Sharon chair. Um. So this thing is it like it it's sand it's like a sandwich board you know like that restaurants advertise the lunch specials on okay uh, it it opens up so you have two fairly wide pieces of uh of some kind of wood uh, some kind of plywood um i'd say it's mm, 10 or 12 inches wide so it has like a nice wide base to kind of sit back against which is very comfortable yeah uh it has a very nice padded seat um and i think when this thing is deployed it's got to be Oh gee, I'm guessing around 40 ish inches tall. And then you, what you do, so it's fully adjustable for your, for whatever height you're observing at, which is important because no matter what telescope you're using, um, the height of your eye is going to change as you look at different things in the sky because your telescope's at different angles. Um, so to, to have comfortable observing, you adjust your seat height to observe, you know, comfortably at the eyepiece. Um, and this Sharon chair, you just take the seat out and it has like little cutouts in this plywood. There's got to be 15 cutouts all the way from the ground to the top. And you just plug it into the, the height you want and you're observing. Wow. It is so simply designed, but it works so well. Um, and even just how it like, <laughs> there's a, there's a little, it's hard to explain uh, without visuals, but there's this little wood thing that kind of, like it, when it's deployed, it holds the bottom parts together so that they can't expand too far. And then, you know, you fall, uh, you fall on your butt. Um, but then that little wood thing, like when you collapse the sandwich board, the little wood thing kind of locks it in place so you can carry it with one hand and, and it doesn't open or become kind of awkward. Okay. And it is a really, really nice chair. Huh. Uh, I won't, I won't need another chair for the rest of my life. Like this thing will last forever. Huh. Wow. Is it uh, heavy or not too bad? Or uh, I'm looking yeah. at it online. It looks like you're right. It's, it's pretty tall. Like it's pretty substantial. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because I'm kind of a tall dude and, and sometimes the tripods are kind of tall, I wanted to have a seat that, that was pretty tall as well. Yeah. Uh, weight wise, I don't know. It's probably 10 or 12 pounds. Okay. That's not too bad. No, no, it's pretty simple. And I, I love how it just compacts and you have like when it folds up, it's basically like two, I don't know, maybe three quarter inch sheets of plywood together. Uh, so, you know, in terms of throwing it in the vehicle, um, it really takes up no space at all. Huh? Yeah. It's, cool. uh, it's fantastic. Very cool. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then something else I was going to mention about Friday night. Um, do you ever have problems with floaters, Chris? Yeah, you know, we got a few floaters around my workplace. Oh, no, wait, you mean in my eye? <laughs> yeah. Yes, in, in the eyeball. 
Yeah, I do. Yeah, I have them pretty bad. And and when do those typically show up? Like when do you have problems with them? When I'm looking down, you got to look straight out. Yeah. And and you you don't notice them a lot observing uh when you're at low powers or looking at, you know, a lot of deep sky objects that aren't very bright. But if you're looking at something that is really bright, uh, like uh, Jupiter, uh, and you're using high magnifications, some people have this issue with floaters, which is, you know, you're basically seeing some, like, I don't know, bacteria in your eye that's floating around. And sometimes that's like right on the planet, making it very difficult to observe detail on it. Um, it's, so um, I think they're just, it's not bacteria. It's, um, it's just like cells, basically. Okay. okay. Yeah, they're, they can be really distracting. Some people have them worse than others. Some people don't have them at all. Um, but I read a technique to get rid of them during an observing session and it worked for me. So <laughs> are you ready for this? <laughs> all right. Like, I think I got to start keeping track of your, like Shane's corner or something like that. I don't know. Where you have observing kind of tips? Oddball <laughs> observing tips. This would be eyeball observing tips, I guess. But yeah. go for it. Yeah. So there was one, when I was looking at Jupiter, I had a floater that was kind of right in the middle of the planet. No matter how many times I blinked, it was there. Yeah. So while I was sitting in my nice, comfortable observing chair, I just looked like I sat straight up and then I tilted my head backwards and I was looking straight up in the sky. Um, I probably left. Or I, you know, I was like that for about three seconds. Then I looked at Jupiter again. Yeah. Floaters were gone. And, um, so were you looking down straight up? Like when to clear the floaters, I looked no, straight to, up. when you were, when you were observing Jupiter. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I would have been looking down. Cause they say the, the sort of the, uh, like for like long term, cause I, I find it challenging, like when I'm sketching because, like I couldn't imagine doing that and tracking and sketching and I mean that would be crazy. Is yeah. is just to look uh, to make sure you're oriented so that you're not looking down. Like so that you're like if you're using a refractor, then you're going to rotate your diagonals so that you're looking at it at a at like a ninety degree ish angle. Like maybe down a little bit, but if you are kind of looking down more than like twenty degrees or something. Like you're going to be looking into the spot of your eye where the floaters are or the material that makes them appear like floaters is resting. Mm. And so that's kind of why, but, and that's why that it, it kind of clears them out because you're, you're sort of stirring them up. But eventually like if you're observing for long enough, they're just gonna, they're just gonna float back down into, uh, into that spot again, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. The, the solution I presented would not be permanent. I don't know. I don't know how many times you would have to do that. Like when, when I did it the one time I was good for the rest of my observing, which was probably another 45 minutes or an hour. Oh really? Huh. Yeah. It seemed to be pretty effective. But. Yeah. I, I get them pretty bad. So like I, like even from time to time they can get so bad. I have to go to the eye doctor and uh, cause they just really start irritating me so much. Mm -hmm. um, but the only real solution, it's rather invasive at the present time is to, actually get uh, the vitreous fluid sucked out of your eye and replaced and they really don't have a good process or method for for doing this yet but uh, as soon as they do i will be very quick to the front of that line behind the first person who gets it done uh, <laughs> yeah mine can be so bad that uh yeah they, they can be bad they can be so bad that if i can't get properly oriented and then looking like i've even ended observing sessions 
and oh. I can even see them on a dark sky, like from time to time. Like they're that bad. Well. So yeah. So if I seem particularly annoyed about them, then yeah, I, yeah. I also have like, uh, cause I'm a person with uh, like some pigment problems. And so one of them is like actual pigment in my eye and that causes all kinds of yeah eye problems in astronomy can be very frustrating and what most people don't recognize as being much of a problem for somebody who's doing astronomy can be can be a pretty big problem so or an, an annoyance really more than a problem yeah, yeah for sure yeah. yeah cool everything about eyes there we go who knew <laughs> <laughs> who knew we would get there yeah good stuff yeah so my astronomy class wrapped up this week that was fun. First nice. one I did over, yeah, first one I did over Zoom. And uh, I think it went well. I, I thought it was the most fun one that I've, that I've taught. I, I had the most fun. And uh, we had people from all over the province and everybody seemed super engaged. So that was, uh, yeah, because oftentimes I think people sign up uh, for the in-person class and they come and they're like, you know, they, they may want to know more about like black holes or, or something like that than, uh, than what I'm going to be giving them, <laughs> which is on how to observe the nighttime sky. So, uh, but everybody there seems super engaged on observing the nighttime sky. And uh, yeah, so that was fun. And the next one starts on September 24th. And I was going to plug it to see, I thought it'd be great if, if uh, people from our podcast community would be able to join and they can, but the course is pretty much filled up. <laughs> oh, wow. Jeez. So, yeah. Yeah. We, I only like to take about, I, I say 18. Sometimes a lot of few people uh, squeeze in beyond that. And we did 22 this last time. I really like to keep it to about 18. It, that's like an ideal number for me as like in the material that I do for some reason, 18 or so works really, really well. As soon as I get over 20, I find that I can't give people, um, like a lot of people come because they have questions about how to do astronomy. There's a lot of like little mechanics to it, as you know. Mm -hmm. And when I can't give people uh, enough of my time to really focus on and answer their questions and build stuff into the class, uh, then I find that a bit, uh, a bit of a challenge because I really want to make sure that uh, when people come to the class, they leave with the skills they need to, to actually go in and do astronomy. And most of the stuff we cover in this, but you know, this we're, we're creating the material and we're kind of pushing it out into the universe and, and probably eventually we would cover anything I would ever tell anybody in a class anyway. But um, a lot of time people just get hung up on specific things. Like some people were, were people who already own telescopes that they didn't know what to get for star charts. Right. You and I have talked some about those already, but um, and kind of as soon as I gave them some of those resources, um, they were, you know, they, they kind of, that had kind of met their, their need for that. And then we um, gave them some stuff to look at. And then uh, through the class and the, the course that I teach, uh, uh, there was other people with other questions and, uh, and things that, that they, uh, they were looking for. So I really like that back and forth, uh, which we don't have uh, as much uh, on this show. But, uh, but anyway, you're going to come and do a guest lecture on it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, that should be, that should be good. Uh, people are looking, they can take a look at the university of Regina, uh, continuing education. And, uh, I think I'm the only astronomy course and 
I volunteer to do it. And so uh, people can check it out uh, there. I think it is, I, I checked today and there was three spots left. And probably by the time this goes live on Thursday, <laughs> considering it only opened a week ago tomorrow, it's, I think it's going to be full. So, but uh, yeah, it should be fun. I think one of the reasons though, is that typically a university course um, costs 50 times what we charge for this. <laughs> yeah, the value is incredible. And, you know, in that, that type of setting too, it's just, it's far more laid back. You know, you don't have to worry yeah. about getting there's no a good mark, mark on the final. <laughs> yeah, there's no final and it's just really a way to connect with people. So we just charge the administrative fee and that's it. So, yeah, and it's, and we now have the full support of like all the technology at the university, which I've been eager to get my my grubby fingers on for a while, like, you know, full Moodle uh, course online integration I've been asking for for a long time so that I can put the materials and resources up for the students and students can share stuff and we can message there much easier. So I'm really, really excited about uh, having those uh, capabilities uh, as well. Yeah, so looking forward to that uh, coming up. But you know what else is coming up? I don't. Objects to observe in the September sky. There we go. We should we should end this one here and uh, get on to that. Shane, how can people stay in touch with us? Uh, they can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy. We are on YouTube. And you can email us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Chris. And thanks, everybody, for supporting the podcast.